0: Reacting to the world's best science, the
1: Naked Scientist Newsflash.
0: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dominic Ford. Let's take a look at some of the stories that have been making headlines around the world, scientifically speaking, this week. Dominic, I've got a quick question for you. What would happen if you were to drop a ball bearing about two centimetres across that was at 400 degrees C into some water? I guess when that ball bearing makes contact with the water, the water can get incredibly hot, and so I guess it would boil around that ball bearing. Okay, now let me throw in an added twist. What would happen if I first coated the ball bearing in a substance known as a superhydrophobic layer? In other words, something that was extremely good at repelling water.
2: So I guess the water is going to be repelled away from that ball bearing, so it might not be in contact. But, But surely some of it would still
0: be touched from the ball bearing and still boil. Well, a group of researchers have done the experiment this week and got a very interesting result... I'll tell you in a minute what actually happened. Other news first, though. Uh, An interesting way to repair and restore hearing has been announced this week. Marcello Rivolta, who's a researcher at Sheffield University, has published a paper in Nature where he and his colleagues have found out how to persuade human embryonic stem cells to turn into the kinds of cells that produce the hair cells in your ears that turn sound waves into nerve signals and then also the nerve cells that transmit those electrical signals from the hair cells into the brain to restore hearing because a subset of people who go deaf are deaf because they've lost those nerve connections. So if we can put them back, then we would potentially restore hearing to these individuals. The discovery centres on the fact that if you take uh, cells from a certain part of the developing embryo and you expose them to two growth factors, FGF3 and FGF10 are the names of those growth factors, then it drives the cells to be fooled into thinking that they're in the ear Part of the developing embryo, and they turn into these stem cells that are going to produce the hair cells and the neurons. And they've identified some markers that these cells turn on that can be used to identify what those cells are. They're called Pax2, Nestin 6, 1, and GATA 3. Those are the markers that the cells make. And they can pinpoint clusters of cells that are going to make these nerve cells. So they identified those, isolated them, and cultured them in a dish. And then they took some gerbils that had a drug induced form of hearing loss. And they injected these nerve stem cells into the cochlea, which is the inner ear, where the nerve signals originate from for hearing. And after about six weeks, they all got hearing recovery... But in some, they got complete restoration of their hearing. When they looked in the brains, they found labelled nerve cells showing that these nerves had regenerated the connections into the brain, thus restoring the hearing in these animals. And they say the ability to reinstate auditory neuron functionality paves the way for a future cell-based treatment for auditory neuropathies. And they go on to say it may also, in combination with a cochlear implant, these electrical devices, offer a therapeutic solution to a wider range of patients that currently remain without viable treatment. So is this now likely to go into clinical trials in, in humans? Well one has to be cautious because it involves embryonic stem cells and we have to make sure when using any kind of stem cell that they are safe. But the proof of principle is the key thing and this is an amazing step forward because it means we could basically take a range of disorders which are very hard to treat at the moment and restore near normal hearing if this goes the same way in people as it has in these animals with this technique.
2: Sounds good to me. Now, moving from ears to (laughs) supernovae. A paper published this week in the Astrophysical Journal suggests that up to 90% of supernova explosions go unseen by the surveys designed to look for them. Now, supernova explosions, of course, happen at the ends of the lives of very massive stars. They happen when these stars run out of fuel, when their cores collapse, when there's a tremendous release of gravitational energy from that gravitational collapse and that blows off the envelope of these stars with tremendous violence so that they can outshine billions of more normal stars for a period of a couple of weeks. But if you actually go out and look for these events, you find they seem to be quite rare, even though predictions are that they happen every 20 or 30 years in a galaxy like our own Milky Way. So why are they rare, then? Well, it seems that these events are happening preferentially in areas of the galaxy where we don't have clear lines of sight because there's a material in space called dust. Now this is basically soot which is produced in the envelopes of stars it is basically soot from the burning process and it pervades the space around those stars and if you have too much soot you would basically have a smoke screen and you can't see through it. So what um, a team led by Sepio Matilla of the University of Turka has done in a paper in the Astrophysical Journal this week is to look at nearby galaxies using infrared telescopes, which can basically see through these smoke screens of dust, and compare what they saw with what surveys using more conventional telescopes had seen. And what they found was they saw a tremendous number of supernova explosions in these very dusty, sooty parts of the galaxy where you wouldn't be able to see those supernova explosions with optical telescopes. So they think that up to 80 or 90% of the supernovae
0: are happening in these very dense parts of the galaxies where you simply can't see them. Extraordinary stuff. Dominic, thank you very much. Well, also this week, Cambridge University scientist Beverly Glover has discovered what she says is the brightest thing, talking of supernovae, in nature here on Earth. And guess what? It isn't Stephen Hawking.
3: What we've found is that the fruit of a, a plant called Polia condensata that lives in Africa is the brightest thing in nature. It reflects a higher percentage of the light shining on it than anything else ever recorded, including the famously bright, shiny butterflies that you see out there. So it's a blue-coloured fruit with speckles of pink and yellow and green in it. It's iridescent. It changes colour as you look at it from different angles. And the colour is really bright and really striking. How did you find it? Um, A colleague in the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew was looking through their collection and she knew that I was interested in plants that use structures to generate interesting colour effects, so not just your usual pigmentation but more unusual or striking colours. And she saw these very bright blue fruits that had been collected over 50 years ago. Even though they'd been um, pressed and dried, they were still as bright as when they'd been collected. So she passed them along to us to do the analysis.
0: And how do you know that they are the brightest thing in nature?
3: Well, they may not be. They're the brightest thing measured so far in nature, It's a fairer way to put it. So the percentage of light that they reflect um, back is higher than that reported for anything else that anybody's ever measured.
0: Do we know how they do that?
3: Yes, we do. It's, it's a very clever mechanism. And interestingly, it's an example of convergent evolution because a lot of animals use a similar mechanism. If you think of bright blue butterflies or beetles, then they're highly reflective because they have um, layers of secreted chitin on top of their wings And the layers are spaced at just the right frequency to reflect back particular wavelengths of light. And the cleverness in the system is that the more layers you have, the more light you reflect back, so you get a higher percentage reflectivity. What our fruit is doing is that every individual cell on the outer layer of the fruit has layers within its cell wall. So these are plant cells, they have cellulose cell walls, and those walls are made up of layers of cellulose. And there are many, many, many layers of cellulose, and so of course they're able to reflect a very high amount of light back.
0: Why do they do this?
3: Well, We haven't done any um, experiments out there in the field to check this, but their distribution suggests that they're dispersed by birds... They don't pop open of their own accord so they probably need to be swallowed or to go through the bird's digestive tract for the seeds to come out and yet they don't provide any food reward and so we think that it's actually a trick that nature's come up with a a cunning scheme for attracting birds by being just really bright and shiny even though there's nothing in it for them really.
0: Would that be birds that like shiny things like magpies and bowerbirds that like to decorate their nests with bright things to attract females?
3: That's very likely. It could also be that they just look like really bright blue juicy fruit but you'd think a bird would learn that quite quickly. So we think it's more likely that it's about birds that decorate their nests and are trying to attract females.
0: And given that you've worked out how the fruit does this, could we do anything similar or could we use that knowledge to produce ultra bright things for us to use
3: absolutely so it's a very nice setup because it's doing it with cellulose and cellulose of course is highly biodegradable but also extremely cheap to grow because plants are basically made out of it so if we can figure out how the cellulose is organized in that way we could potentially grow food colorants which are entirely non-toxic biodegradable or colors for for fabric as well so there's lots of potential application there
0: but would they be like the the Henry Ford, would they be any colour you like as long as it's blue?
3: No, not at all. The stacking frequency of the multilayers determines what colour you get. So the fruit is actually multicoloured because although most of the cells have their cell walls stacked at a frequency that generates blue, some are stacked at a slightly wider spacing and they generate yellow or pink or red.
0: Brilliant. Sorry about the pun. That was Cambridge scientist Beverly Glover discussing the bright blue fruit of the polyacondensata plant. That was work she published this week in the journal PNAS. Now back to the ball-bearing story that I tantalised you with earlier. So we drop in a super-hydrophobic coated steel ball-bearing at 400 degrees. What happens? Well, in the words of Nilesh Patankar, who's a researcher at Northwestern University and has published this in the journal Nature this week, he said... It did nothing. (laughs) Actually, this is really interesting because they were using very fast frame video footage of what happens when you do these experiments because they are intrigued by what would happen if you keep the water away from the surface of the ball. And the reason it does nothing is because the ball immediately causes a pocket or an envelope of water vapour to form around it and the super hydrophobic water repelling surface on the ball that they coated it with keeps the water away whereas the vapor can get very close to the surface because it's not repelled in the same way so it acts like a buffer and it keeps the water away the water therefore cannot boil off on the surface and the ball just cools down gently by the vapor conveying heat from the ball surface into the surrounding water why is this important well apart from being a good party trick if you're equipped to do it it also could have industrial applications because this whole business of when you drop water onto a very hot surface and it immediately fizzing and skittering around as it's known that's called the Leidenfrost effect after the german man who first described it actually in the 1700s uh, this is bad industrially you want to be able to heat things up in thin films and gently evaporate them off without having them skittering around all over the place so it could have industrial applications as well but did you get it right answer no I you had to think know. about it for a while well it's incredible to have a scientific paper
2: where the results were that absolutely nothing happened
0: Now, Facebook. Nearly a billion of us use it. But does it affect how we make important decisions? James Fowler at the University of California, San Diego, has been looking at the social networking site Facebook and how it can influence voting behaviour. Now, James, hello. Welcome to the show. Oh, Thank you. Um, You famously showed that if people have overweight friends on Facebook, then they're more likely to put on weight themselves. But now you're turning to politics.
1: Yes, we are, and and this week we reported the results of an experiment that we conducted on Election Day in the United States in 2010 where we randomly assigned to get out the vote messages to 61 million people on Facebook. There were two different kinds of messages, one with faces of friends and one without, and there was also a control group that received no messages. And the results of the experiment showed that the message directly mobilized 60,000 people who saw the message, but it also mobilized an additional 280,000 people who were friends of the people who saw the message. And we were able to do this because in the United States, public uh, voting records are public, and we were able to match about 6 million of the, the Facebook users to publicly available records to see whether or not they actually got to the polls.
0: Oh, so you could check up on them as well. So just to recap, you had three groups of people, a control group who you just looked at, and and just monitor their behaviour. You've got a group who get a little button which says go and vote and another group that say go and vote and by the way here are some friends of yours who voted.
1: That's correct and the interesting thing about the two different kinds of messages we showed people though there was one that had pictures of their friends who had clicked on the button during the day and another one didn't have these same pictures and what we found was that the one that had the pictures actually was the one that did all the work the one without the pictures the rate of voting for the people who got that message was exactly the same as for the people who saw no message whatsoever and so these these pictures of your friends are the, are what seem to be doing most of the the heavy lifting in terms of the the total effect of the experiment on real world behaviour.
0: But do you know, James, whether it is just seeing pictures of your friends that makes you attend to that bit of the screen more and for longer, so you notice the "go and vote now" message more, we or or is yeah, you, we, the, it that the friends have voted and this makes you think, "Wow, I'd better keep up with what my friends are doing"?
1: That's, that's a good good question, and, and we would like to figure this out, I think, in a future experiment. Right now, we just know that the message worked, but it's possible that it's just something that draws your eyes to the message um, because, you know, just like when you see a list of random words, if your name happens to be in that list of random words, you're likely to be able to pick it out very quickly. Um, seeing faces of friends, it might cause you to attend the message. Um, but one of the things that we were able to show was that not only was it the case that people who saw faces of their friends voted more but the friends of the people who received the message voted more. And so the consequence, there was something that happened on the way from you getting the message to your friend voting that probably had something more to do than, than just attending the message. It had to do with the process of social influence.
0: So what are the implications then? You put this message up and people see that their friends have reacted to it and you end up with a bigger result um, through the social networking impact than the primary advertising in the first place. Facebook must be That's delighted. Right.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it was really interesting um, we, You know, to, to make it just perfectly clear, for every one person whose behavior was changed directly, there were four friends whose behavior was changed. And the interesting thing is I think that campaigns, they've gotten very smart in the last few years, in um, countries like the United States and and in Europe. And um, they do experiments. They do these message testing on a large scale, but I think that they don't necessarily utilize all this new social network information that we have. And what this really shows is that if you were just looking at the people who receive the message, you'd be missing the whole story. The network is really key here.
0: Is the fact that voting is something that people should universally do also important? Because if you had conversely put up an advert saying uh, Mrs. Whoever bought a Ferrari. Uh, now that's only going to be relevant to a subset of people and a subset of friends and therefore is unlikely to have the same impact as if it said go and vote because that's something that doesn't attract a physical cost and also is something everyone should do.
1: I think that's exactly right. And, and in particular, I would expect these social effects to be stronger for things that we think of as social behavior or as as socially appropriate behavior. You know, another thing that we found in the study, just like we have found in other studies, is that there are some people who clicked on the vote button in this case, but then we went to check up on them, they didn't actually vote. Um, And I think one of the reasons why is because it's highly socially desirable to be seen as as participating in politics. When it comes to buying a Ferrari, you might get some social benefits out of owning a Ferrari, um, but there's not a lot of people saying, well, you have to vote, uh, uh, this is your obligation, know to to own a Ferrari. Um, so I I do think that that it may be the case that we wouldn't see the same strength of effects for for other kinds of things online.
0: What's worrying me though is the sorts of numbers that you're producing from this study of people whose voting behavior was influenced, if you look in the state of Florida in the Bush Gore election, that was one with nearly 600 votes only, a tiny number, you're influencing orders of magnitude more people with this study. So does this mean that potentially a savvy politician using Facebook could actually totally skew an election result then?
1: I do think that these are going to be effective tools, but everyone is going to know about them, and so I think that what you'll see is both sides trying to use the tools and both sides trying to, to mobilize their, their, their voters, and it's important to remember that although it's, it was a fairly large number of people, 340,000 people, this is out of 61 million. And so, so it's, it's a small effect, but because it's spread out over a very, very large number of people in a very, very large network, I do think it's possible that as we learn more about how these processes work, that you could do targeting and you could get those 537 voters in Florida that you would have needed to change the outcome of the election.
0: James, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much. That's James Fowler from the University of California, San Diego, and he published that work this week in the journal Nature. Dominic.
1: Now,
2: with a roundup of what else has been hitting the scientific headlines, this week, here's Martha Henricus.
4: Eating a high-fat diet during pregnancy could increase the risk of breast cancer of mothers, their daughters and even their granddaughters. Sonia de Assis and her team at Georgetown University compared two groups of pregnant rats. One fed a high-fat diet and the other fed a normal diet. Three generations of DNA are present in a pregnant mother, her own DNA, the DNA of the daughter in her womb, and the DNA of her daughter's eggs, which are already present in the developing foetus. The high-fat group of mothers showed increased oestrogen levels, which were linked to cancer-causing chemical changes to DNA of all three generations. This study, published in Nature Communications, will help scientists understand how breast cancers are inherited. The important message hear is that ancestral exposures, what your parents or grandparents were exposed to, can affect your risk of disease, and in this case, breast cancer risk. Rain is more likely to fall over dry ground than wet ground, a study published in Nature shows. Christopher Taylor and his team at the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology looked at images from weather satellites around the world to track where storms happen, and compared this data with measurements of local soil wetness. Previously, it was thought that the high humidity over wet ground would be more likely to seed storms. But Taylor found that the reverse is true, and the higher temperatures over drier ground is a key factor in creating storms. This, say the scientists, pours cold water on current weather forecasting and climate prediction models.
0: Rather surprisingly, we found that the models do the wrong
2: thing in the sense that they produce rain over wetter soils rather than drier soils. That's quite an important problem for the simulation of droughts and also for for weather forecasts. And it's one which I think uh, weather centres really need to start thinking about how they represent that process.
4: Scientists have found five genes linked to facial appearance. Manfred Kayser and his colleagues at the Erasmus MC University Medical Centre in Rotterdam used MRI images from thousands of people of European descent to map 48 key facial characteristics. The genome sequences of over 4,000 people were then combed for genetic hotspots reproducibly associated with these facial landmarks, identifying regions on chromosomes 1, 3, 5 and 10. While three regions had been identified in previous studies, two were entirely new. Kayser hopes that further work building on this study, published in PLOS Genetics, will lead to advances in forensic science.
2: You could imagine that at some point one will be able to predict facial appearance, facial shape from a DNA sample. So in other words, you take a DNA sample, you do your genetic analysis and you come up with a facial image.
4: And finally, a Boeing 747 with a difference will be lifting off this November. SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, will be carrying a telescope with a diameter of 2.5 metres and will fly at 40,000 feet into the stratosphere to view the universe in the infrared. At this height, SOFIA will be free of the cloud layer that blocks infrared light from the ground. Eric Young is SOFIA's Science Mission Operations Director.
1: We'll be looking at... The cooler things in the universe, uh, such as planets, dust clouds, star formation regions and uh, external galaxies, uh, they give off most of their radiation in the infrared and which are too cool to give off uh, light at uh, visible wavelengths. Uh, by, by doing this, we're able to have a much uh, richer view of the universe.
2: Eric Young, ending that report from our Naked Scientist News Flash with Martha Henricus and the references for that and all of our news this week can be found online at thenakedscientist.com slash news.
0: The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.